Welcome to the first episode of Sad Girl Study Guides. I'm your host, Amelia, and I'm sad. Our first study guide will be exploring the Stuart dynasty in England because they are my sweet, sweet trash babies and because that's what I'm in graduate school for right now, so why not? We're going to kick off this round of study guides with James I of England, a.k.a. James VI of Scotland. In history class, he's the uniter of England and Scotland, or the guy who was king when the pilgrims found Plymouth, or, according to Disney's Pocahontas, our dear friend King Jimmy. But his story is much more fun. The highlights of his study guide include multiple murders, very questionable taste in men, and witches. Let's begin. James is born June 19th, 1566, in Edinburgh Castle in, guess what, Edinburgh, Scotland. His parents are Mary, Queen of Scots, and her husband slash cousin, Henry Stuart, Lord Darnley, because we're still far enough back in history where it's totally socially acceptable for royalty to marry their cousins. At the time of James's birth, Mary had been in Scotland ruling for about five years. Yes, she technically had become the Queen of Scotland as a tiny little baby, a trend that's going to continue on in James's life, but for her childhood and teen years, she'd been off in France. It's only in about 1561 that Mary actually returns to Scotland, and the situation in Scotland isn't exactly great for dear old Mary. She is extremely Catholic, while the rest of Scotland tends to lean much more Protestant, which definitely isn't awkward. Also not at all awkward is the fact that Mary has a whole rivalry with her cousin and neighbor to the south, Queen Elizabeth of England, who is very Protestant and very afraid that Mary is plotting to steal her throne. But that is a story for another study guide that will be made at some point. Despite the tension between Mary and Elizabeth, Mary, and by extension, James, are next in line for the English throne. At the time of his birth, Mary and Darnley have a really terrible relationship. Yes, Darnley is super handsome, but he's also a complete drunk, and he's really jealous. So jealous that he had murdered Mary's beloved secretary, David Rizzio, while Mary was about six months pregnant with James. Good job, Darnley. As a result of all this tension, less than a year after James is born, Darnley dies under some mysterious circumstances. The house he's in gets blown up. Except Darnley's body isn't blown up. Oh no, it's found strangled to death sometime after the house is blown up. And Mary technically was supposed to be at home with Darnley the night of the explosion. But then, would you look at that? She had to go off to the wedding of a lady-in-waiting, and she's conveniently out of the picture. Huh. How convenient. 
who make matters even less suspicious for Mary, pretty soon after Darnley's death, she remarries. And she marries this guy, James Hepburn, a.k.a. the Earl of Bothwell, a.k.a. one of the co-leaders in the whole Let's Murder Darnley Club. Bothwell is extremely unpopular with the rest of the Scottish nobility, and as a result of the marriage between Mary and Bothwell in June 1567, the Scottish nobles first force Mary to abdicate, and then they imprison her at Lochleven. With Mary abdicated, James is now the King of Scotland at the very old and competent age of 13 months. When I was 13 months old, I couldn't even walk. About a year after she's forced to abdicate, Mary does manage to escape Lochleven. She tries to raise an army to take on the Scottish nobles. She fails, and she does the really smart thing of running straight to England and straight to her old arch-nemesis, Elizabeth I. Mary being in England causes a whole headache for Elizabeth I because she's like, I don't like Mary. Mary has been the center of quite a few plots against me, but she is my cousin, so I guess I'll just keep her in England under my custody as a quasi-prisoner guest. And Mary is going to end up spending the next decade and a half in Elizabeth's custody. Meanwhile, in Scotland, we still have the toddler James as king. But given that he can't even walk, most likely, James is not actually going to be doing any ruling. Instead, he's going to have a series of regents. And none of the regents are going to go all that well, because Scotland is going to be in a little bit of a messy situation. The monarchy, obviously, is super weak, and the nobility would like to keep the monarchy weak. Thank you very much. Weak monarchy means strong nobility. So as a result, we're going to have a very, very disunified country that James's four regents are going to have to deal with. James's first regent is the Earl of Moray. His uncle, the Earl of Moray, had been Mary's stepbrother. The two just did not get along. And it turns out he doesn't really get along that well as regent. He ends up getting assassinated pretty early on. Even though he is assassinated, there is a small bright spot. The Earl of Moray is the first known Western leader to be killed via firearm, so points to him. I'm sure he was super thrilled about that, but now he's dead. James's next regent is his grandfather, Darnley's dad, the Earl of Lennox. The Earl of Lennox has a ton of support from Elizabeth I, which causes a lot of tension in Scotland. Actually, that's putting it mildly. The Earl of Lennox's rise to power causes a civil war in Scotland. Basically, we have nobles who are like, yes, we like having the Earl of Lennox in charge. We like having someone who's backed by the English in charge. And then we have these nobles who are like, look, we hate the English. Yes, Mary sucked as queen, but it's better than having this English pawn in charge. So we're going to have a civil war over whether or not Mary should come back to Scotland. In the middle of the civil war, the Earl of Lennox dies. So 
James needs a third regent. His next regent is going to be this old man, the Earl of Mar. The Earl of Mar doesn't stick around that much because he also dies, this time of disease, not of fighting. And then finally, James gets his final regent, the Earl of Morton. The Earl of Morton is very competent. He ends the Civil War pretty quickly upon becoming regent and was also very, very much involved in the murder of James's father, which isn't at all awkward. During all of the Civil War and all of the regents, James is pushed onto the sidelines. I mean, he's a little kid. He's not going to be running around waving a sword. Instead, he's being raised by the wife of the Earl of Mar. And during this time, James really does get an amazing education. He's going to be a total nerd for the rest of his life. But James only has book smarts. He's never going to have street smarts or people smarts, which means that for the rest of his life, he's going to be seeking out friendship and love wherever he can get it. And oftentimes, he's going to get it from some really shady people who are just going to make a total mess of things. When James is 13, he finally gets his first friend, Esme Stewart Sieur de Aubigny, who is a quasi-distant cousin of sorts. Esme Stewart had been a Catholic who had been living in France, but as soon as Esme comes to Scotland and befriends James, he converts to Protestantism. Oh yeah, Esme's a dude. Should have mentioned that sooner, but now we're there. As Esme and James become closer and closer, Esme convinces James that Morton, one, is a Catholic, and two, is solely responsible for Darnley's death, and as a result, James should have a little coup and kill Morton. It works. James does end up having Morton executed and starts to attempt to consolidate power so he can rule on his own. However, it doesn't go totally smoothly. After Morton's executed in August 1582, James gets kidnapped by some uber-Protestant nobles who aren't exactly thrilled that his BFF is this ex-French Catholic guy. During the kidnapping, James has to speak out against Esme. Esme isn't an idiot. He sees the writing on the wall and flees to exile where he dies. After Esme flees, James does manage to escape from the Scottish nobles, which is good. Historically, a king who is being held captive doesn't really do all that great. And once James is free from the nobles, he manages to ally with yet another James. James Stuart, with a W, the Earl of Arran, who had been one of Esme's other friends. With Arran's help, James finally manages to officially consolidate power and starts ruling in his own right in 1583 at the super mature and capable age of 17. So that's James's early childhood. As a quick recap, he becomes king at 13 months after his mother is forced to abdicate and then flee to England. During his childhood, we have a series of four regents, none of whom last very long because they keep getting killed or dying of disease or getting executed for being murderers. Once he starts trying to gain power with the help of his cousin, 
Esme. James does quickly get kidnapped, manages to escape his kidnappers, and finally grabs power. And during all of this, we still have some questions over what direction Scotland's going to go in terms of religion. Will Scotland ever be unified? Who's going to win, the nobles or the king? And will James ever get to sit down and just read his damn books? The situation on the ground in Scotland when James finally starts ruling on his own is aggressively not great. Like I mentioned, Scotland is not exactly unified, and the Scottish nobles would very much like to keep it that way. Thank you very much. And there's also a bit of a religious issue in Scotland. Scotland has been a Protestant nation for about a decade and a half, but there's still some pretty serious internal debates over what the church hierarchy should look like. Should it be a more Presbyterian Kirk system with a very loose hierarchy and no bishops? Or should the Scottish system look at the Church of England and its very strict, more traditional hierarchy for inspiration? James says, no, we are not doing a Presbyterian system because that's going to limit my authority as king. Let's keep these bishops because who will the bishops report to? That's right, the king. That being said, James does allow for some limited toleration for various dissenting religious groups, including Catholics. And when we say limited toleration, it essentially means we're not going to murder you in fun and interesting ways. On top of the religion issue, there's also the question of James's dear old mother, Mary, Queen of Scots, who had been a prisoner in England for decades at this point. Elizabeth I is not thrilled about the fact that Mary is still in England, and honestly, James probably doesn't want to deal with it, but dealing with it, he has to do, because Elizabeth I passes this new law, the Bonds of Association, in response to all these various plots against her. And the Bonds of Association say that anyone who would benefit directly from Elizabeth's death is guilty of a plot against her and can also be tried of treason. Hmm, let's think. Who is next in line to the throne of England and would definitely benefit from Elizabeth's death and has definitely not gotten along with Elizabeth in the past. That's right, Mary, Queen of Scots. These bonds of association are almost certainly aimed at Mary, Queen of Scots. The same year that the bonds of association go into effect, this guy, Anthony Babington, who a baby Eddie Redmayne played in a movie, tries to organize a conspiracy to murder Elizabeth and replace her with Mary. Spoiler alert. It fails. And thanks to the Bonds of Association, Mary Queen of Scots is found guilty after a trial and she's executed in 1587. Publicly, James I is fairly ambivalent about the whole my mom's about to have her head cut off thing, which gives him kind of a nasty historical reputation. However, in my opinion, it makes sense that publicly, at least, he's going to be ambivalent about the whole thing. He wants to keep a good relationship with Elizabeth. Not only is England his southern neighbor, England is much stronger than Scotland. 
James has basically just become king. He does not want to anger England and possibly trigger some sort of war. Also, the last time he had seen Mary, he was 13 months old. He probably doesn't even remember his mother. It's a little bit less clear how James feels about his mother's death in private. Maybe he was really upset about it, but I think being like, James is the worst person because he did not openly sob when his mother died is a little bit, I don't know. There are going to be much more things to critique James for as we're going to see. Now that Mary is out of the way and James doesn't have to worry about pissing off England in a possible war or whatever, he's able to get down to kingly business. That's right, he has to get married and start pushing out legitimate heirs because the Stuart dynasty in Scotland has historically been plagued by an inability to have children to inherit the throne. In 1589, when he's 23, he marries the 14-year-old Anne of Denmark because that's what every father wants for their daughter. You just love to see a guy who's old enough to be out of college marrying your kid who could be a freshman in high school. It's a tale as old as time. And don't worry, guys. James and Anne's age gap is pretty tame, all things considered, historically. And they do end up having... A pretty good relationship even though James is going to rampantly cheat on Anne. In fact, James goes over to Norway, which at that point in time is part of Denmark, to pick Anne up in person. However, winter storms do their winter storm thing and the two get stuck in Norway for an entire winter. They don't make it back to Scotland until May 1590, but in that awkward interim, we're stuck here and the weather's awful. They do get to know each other, which is always a really key thing to do when you're marrying someone. Like, knowing the person you're going to marry is a good idea. They do end up having seven children. Henry, Elizabeth, Margaret, Charles, Robert, Mary, and Sophia. However, only Henry, Elizabeth, and Charles are going to survive past infancy. It's around the time that James marries Anne that he starts getting a bit of a reputation in Scotland. His court is super blinged out, which is all really fun and good, except Scotland and James just doesn't have the money to pay for all this bling. And rumors start going around about James and how maybe he's not that interested in being a king because he'd rather be off writing his own poetry or playing golf or going horseback riding or being a patron for various playwrights than actually sitting down and governing. And look, I'm the biggest fan of writing poetry. God knows I wrote some really bad poetry in high school and being a patron for artists and playwrights less of a fan of golf, TVH, but when you're king, you know, you actually have to be king. You can't just be, like, skipping out to go horseback riding. And then there's the little matter of the witches. James is super into witches, and I mean, everyone in this time period is like, ooh, spooky, that's a thing, but James is, like, even more into witches than anyone else in this time period. 
In the early 1590s, James is going to start a series of witch hunts that are going to end with at least 200 people getting executed. And in these witch hunts, James is going to pull the official Scottish government in because he's going to say, look, these witches aren't just consorting with Satan, they're also using witchcraft to attempt to overthrow me. So it's no longer just a religious matter, it's also a government treason thing. These witch trials are going to eventually die down after about 1597, but James is going to be interested in witchcraft for his entire life. He writes an entire book on the subject called Demonology. I have read small excerpts from Demonology, and let me tell you, that book slaps. And once James becomes King of England, Shakespeare is going to write him a little play called Macbeth, which has one of the most famous portrayals of witches in modern history. No big deal. In addition to the witches in the 1590s, James is dealing with just run-of-the-mill noble rebelliousness. Most of the noble discontent is going to be headed up by his cousin, Francis Stuart, the fifth Earl of Bothwell, which is definitely not awkward. My cousins personally are always trying to murder me, and I'm always trying to murder them. Just kidding. We got along very well. However, unlike earlier noble rebellions against the Stuarts, these ones in the 1590s don't go anywhere. And by 1597, right when the witch hunts are wrapping up, it's very clear that James is pretty securely on the throne of Scotland, and he isn't going anywhere. The last attempt to get rid of James, in Scotland at least, happens in 1600 with what is known as the Gowrie Conspiracy. In August 1600, James is doing his Jamesish thing and is going hunting in the Scottish countryside. He then gets unexpectedly called to visit the Gowrie House in Perth, which is the stronghold of the Gowrie family. The Gowrie family traditionally have not been the hugest fans of James, but despite this piece of knowledge, James decides to visit them anyway. While he's at the Gowrie house, he goes to a side room with the Earl of Gowrie's younger and very attractive brother. While he's in the room with the younger Gowrie, people hear a commotion and yelling. They try to open the door. It's locked. In the process of breaking the door down, both the Earl and his younger brother end up dead. The official story from the government is that James was lured to the Gowry home in an attempt to kill him and put someone new on the throne. However, there's a lot about the story that just doesn't quite add up. Why would James willingly go to the house of his rivals? What was he doing in the side room of a young, hot man? And, huh, isn't it funny that now that the Gowries are dead, James suddenly has a lot of political power and a ton of money? Weird. So, there is definitely a conspiracy theory that James set up the entire thing in order to get rid of some of his political enemies and make a ton of money. But, on the other hand... The conspiracy theory that James secretly planned it also has a lot of aspects to it that don't make sense, so we probably will never know the full truth. 
even though James is pretty secure in Scotland, the whole England thing is starting to raise its ugly little head by the time the 1590s are wrapping up, because Elizabeth I, as bad a bitch as she might be, still hasn't named an official heir for after she dies. If she were to follow what her dad, Henry VIII, had wanted, the throne would go to the descendants of his younger sister, Mary Tudor. No, not that Mary Tudor. The Mary Tudor you're thinking of is Queen Mary I of England, a.k.a. Bloody Mary. The Mary Tudor I'm talking about is Henry VIII's sister, who scandalized everyone by marrying a king of France, and after he died, marrying Charles Brandon, Henry's BFF. However, by the 1590s, that side of the family is a complete mess and might not even be legitimate. Also, why should Elizabeth listen to what her dad wants? All Henry VIII had ever done for Elizabeth was cause a lot of pain and drama. Meanwhile, James is related to Henry VIII's older sister, Margaret Tudor, through both of his parents, because remember, his parents are cousins, which gives him a really nice boost in the line of succession, and James already has multiple legitimate heirs, which is also helpful because so much of the political drama in England is over the fact that none of the monarchs are able to successfully have children. In 1586, Elizabeth had signed this treaty with Scotland called the Treaty of Berwick, which said that she wasn't going to hurt James's right to the English throne. If she died and James said that he wanted to be king of England, he could be king of England. So there is that precedent, but she still hasn't officially recognized him as heir, and that begins creating some tension between the two of them, especially when Elizabeth starts asking James to do various favors for her in Scotland, like arresting Scottish nobles who she doesn't like. James is like, why should I do this when I'm not even your heir, Liz? So even though things seem nice on the surface, there is this undercurrent of tension between the two, and it's going to get a whole lot worse. Because in 1595, an anonymous pamphlet gets published that suggests that James actually has no claim to the throne of England and that the throne really should go to Isabella, the princess of Spain. And when I say anonymous pamphlet, this pamphlet truly is anonymous. We really have no idea who wrote it. The pamphlet says that Isabella's claim is stronger because she has a better connection to John of Gaunt. And of course, John of Gaunt is coming up in the very first study guide. John of Gaunt is going to constantly come up in English history. And I feel like I should be taking a shot in his honor but I'm recording this at nine in the morning and my life isn't that tragic. The pamphlet also says that Mary Queen of Scots had disowned James as her heir right before she had died, which she didn't do, that's false, but it starts this rumor about James not actually being a legitimate possibility of heir to the throne of England, which is a real issue. We want a strong claim to the English throne. We don't want some sort of civil war upon Elizabeth's death. 
This pamphlet really freaks out Elizabeth's right-hand man and main advisor, William Cecil, because the last thing he wants is a fucking Spanish princess inheriting the throne of England. So William Cecil starts reaching out to James and Ernest, being like, look, we need to consolidate your claim to the throne of England. With William Cecil's advice, James names his oldest daughter Elizabeth in order to win Elizabeth over. He also starts reaching out to the Pope, and it works. The Pope says, yeah, when Elizabeth dies, James is the legitimate heir, not this random princess of Spain. William Cecil begins getting English noble support for James's claim to the throne, which goes really well. All of the nobles are like, yeah, we want James to be the next king of England, not this random Spanish. It goes a little bit too well in one case, in fact. There's this one noble guy, Robert Devereux, the Earl of Essex, who's a total hottie, who gets a little bit too excited about the whole concept of James being the next king, and he's like, why wait? Elizabeth's old. Let's just depose her and give the throne to James. This deposition utterly fails. Devereux is arrested and executed, but it's really clear that James had nothing to do with the plot. Cecil vouches for him, and James gets to, like, hang out in Scotland and be like, I'm just waiting for Elizabeth to die. In the middle of the waiting for Elizabeth to die, William Cecil does tragically die, but he is replaced by his equally competent son, Robert, who is going to continue to help guide James through the whole process. Both of the Cecil's machinations do end up working. On May 24th, 1603, Queen Elizabeth I of England dies. Five days later, James officially accepts the throne of England and is recognized as the new king. Yay, James. Everyone's assuming that James is going to be an awesome king of England. After all, when he becomes king, he'd been ruling his own kingdom up in Scotland for about 20 years, and he's done a pretty good job of it. He's managed to fight off all the attempts to get rid of him. He's basically unified Scotland, which is no easy feat given where the kingdom had started. He's vaguely resolved the religious issues in the kingdom, mostly by ignoring them, but he did manage to maintain the bishop system, which was a big controversy. So everyone's expecting he'll do similar things in England. That'll be great, it'll be easy, everyone's going to be happy. Spoiler alert, he's not going to manage it, and no one's going to be happy. A big reason for this is that England has a slightly different system than Scotland, and the big difference is going to be Parliament. Theoretically, Scotland did have a parliament too, but England's parliament is much, much more powerful than Scotland's was. In England, the monarch has to go to parliament whenever they need money. So parliament does have a pretty decent amount of power when James inherits the English throne. England is already in some pretty serious debt from Elizabeth's wars with Spain. I mean, these wars with Spain were really important. England won. 
Yay, patriotism. But they were expensive, and Elizabeth hadn't ever quite managed to pay them off. So James is going to have to pay them off. But James also really likes a blinged out court, and that also costs money. So now he has two things where he's going to have to keep going to Parliament and getting money from them. Parliament expects that James is going to be polite to them. He's going to ask for their input on things. And James is like, you know, why should I do that? James is going to try to bypass Parliament and make money in other ways. Luckily for James, he has three main ways to make money without Parliament, but unluckily for James, none of them really work. His first option is to sell off royal lands that belong to the crown, but those lands aren't really worth any money, so he's just losing land and getting nothing in return. His second option is a thing called purveyance, where he can request goods for royal use without having to pay full price. Purveyance also doesn't really work. First of all, it's pretty unpopular, and second of all, it doesn't make money. It just allows him to lose less money. His third option is to sell off the guardianship of underaged noble wards, which does make a decent amount of money, but is extremely unpopular. So even though he is able to make a little bit of money here and there, none of the options really work that well, and they just lead to James becoming less and less popular with the English nobility and the general English population. Not all is lost for James, though. A few of his advisors, specifically Robert Cecil, are going to try to help him get money and try to help improve the relationship between King and Parliament, but even they aren't going to be fully successful. James really kicks off his reign in 1604 with three big things. Parliament, religion, and foreign affairs. He calls his first parliament in 1604. They mostly just debate over money. They don't really come to any real decisions. But in these debates, we start seeing lines getting drawn in the sand over royal prerogatives. Basically, who has the upper hand? King or Parliament? Can the king do whatever he wants, or does Parliament get to step in? Remember this idea. It's going to be really, really important down the line. Next up, religion. Religion has been a bit of a touchy issue in England since the time of Henry VIII. As a reminder, Henry VIII had created the Church of England splitting from the Roman Catholic Church over the whole wanting to divorce Catherine of Aragon to get with Anne Boleyn. By the time James I reaches the throne of England, we have a bunch of different Protestant groups in England, as well as a very small Catholic minority. James isn't too worried about this Catholic minority because they're pretty small, but he is having to deal with tensions between the different Protestant groups. The largest group is the High Anglicans, aka the Church of England. The High Anglicans are the official Protestant group in England. They're very focused on ritual and hierarchy. They're very formal. A lot of their critics say they're too close to the Catholics. 
Then we have some lower Anglican groups who still follow the same prayer book. They're still Anglican, but they maybe want to remove some of the hierarchy. They have a little bit more in common with, say, the Scottish system of things where we don't have the crazy bishop hierarchy. We also have Protestant groups known as the Puritans, who want to purify the church of any trace of Catholicism. They want to get rid of things like communion, like kneeling, stained glass, etc., etc. And then we have some really extreme Protestant groups who are known as the separatists, who say, look, the entire Anglican church is inherently flawed. We just need to burn it all down to the ground and start a new church. The separatists are so extreme that they're going to get exiled to the Netherlands, and from the Netherlands they will eventually make their way to Massachusetts in 1620. That's right, they're the Pilgrims. Anyways, in 1604, the Puritans give James a petition asking for a bunch of changes to the Church of England, such as less music in services, and James is like, ooh, a chance to reform the church and be known in history as the savior of the Church of England, sign me up. And he calls the Hampton Court Conference to come up with some sort of compromise. The Hampton Court Conference ends in almost no compromise because James ends up getting pretty irritated with the Puritans. The Puritans begin talking about a Presbyterian system, and James is like, no, no, naughty children, I don't like that system, you're trying to steal my power. So, in terms of reforming the church, we get none of that. James just isolates the Puritans. But one really big thing does come out of the Hampton Court Conference. The idea that there needs to be a new English translation of the Bible. And James is like, wait, this involves scholarship and writing? Those are two of my favorite hobbies. I will commission this new translation. And he does. This new translation is finished in 1617. You may have heard of it. It's known as the King James Bible. No big deal. The last big thing that James does in 1604 is foreign policy. England had theoretically been at war with Spain for quite a while, and yes, they have been beating Spain, but this war is pretty expensive, and in 1604, James signs the Treaty of London. The Treaty of London says that England is going to be neutral in Spain's wars from here on out, which is super unpopular in England because Spain is England's biggest enemy, but it allows England to save some money and it allows colonization in the Americas. Because the Treaty of London ultimately lays the groundwork for English colonies at Jamestown, Bermuda, Newfoundland, Massachusetts, Rhode Island, and Connecticut. Was English colonization in the Americas a mistake? Eh, I mean, like, I wouldn't be here without it. So, I mean, you say it was a massive mistake. James's first year goes pretty smoothly. His second year isn't going to be quite as nice, because it's time to talk about every fedora-wearing dude bro's favorite patron saint, Guy Fawkes, and the gunpowder plot. The gunpowder plot basically is the first and only time in James's reign that the Catholics start kicking up their heels. By the time James comes to the throne, 
practicing Catholics are a very small minority in England. As King of Scotland, James had allowed some limited toleration for Catholics, and everyone assumes he'll do the same thing in England. However, for various political reasons, James does not. In fact, he goes the opposite direction and starts finding Catholics who don't go to Church of England services. This makes a lot of Catholics in England very upset. And two of these Catholics, Robert Catsby and Guy Fawkes, start plotting against James. Their plot, which is so creatively known as the Gunpowder Plot, involves them smuggling a ton of gunpowder into a building right next to Parliament and then blowing up the building, Parliament, all of the MPs, and the King, and putting James's daughter, Elizabeth, on the throne as a Catholic figurehead monarch. It doesn't work. Someone in the group of plotters sends an anonymous letter to a noble who immediately turns it over to Robert Cecil and all the conspirators are caught. Catsby is killed immediately and Guy Fawkes is tortured and sentenced to a super nasty execution, which includes being drawn and quartered. However, the execution doesn't quite go through in all of its nastiness because as he's getting ready to be strung up for the hanging portion, Guy Fawkes manages to break his own neck. So the entire thing, including Guy Fawkes, isn't quite as glamorous as the fedora-wearing fedora legions of 4chan would make it out to be. However, the gunpowder plot does lead to something, and that is a ton of anti-Catholic sentiment in England, a type of sentiment that will last for quite a few centuries. Great job, England. The potential for the gunpowder plot really freaks out James. He realizes that having England and Scotland as two ununited kingdoms that he's ruling simultaneously isn't great, especially if he dies unexpectedly. What if someone takes over the throne of one and not the other, like the gunpowder plotters were planning? So he starts pushing to make a united kingdom between Scotland and England for political and logistical reasons. Tragically for James, this plan of a United Kingdom doesn't really go anywhere, and it won't really go anywhere until the 1700s. But hey, James, you tried. He also starts the Irish plantation system around Ulster in this time period. Basically, the Irish plantation system around Ulster involves the English crown paying English and Scottish Protestants to move to Ireland and take over land that had been traditionally owned by Anglo-Irish Catholics, and it's a really stupid fucking thing, and it only ends in tears and lays the groundwork for a lot of bad stuff, and someday I will do a study guide about the history of Ireland and, like, the Irish occupation by the English, but today is not that day. James spends the next few years doing his thing, being a patron of the arts, building giant extravagant palaces, hiring this guy named Inigo Jones to design various entertainment spots for him, which is fun but expensive. And by 1610, James is running out of money, so he calls Parliament yet again. And per usual, 
James and Parliament don't exactly get along. So our BFF, Robert Cecil, attempts to make a deal between James and Parliament called the Great Contract. Under the Great Contract, James would give up some of his traditional rights in exchange for an annual sum of money. Both sides get something they want. Parliament gets a bit more power. James is guaranteed money each year. However, during the actual negotiations, when they're trying to decide how much money James gets and what rights he's going to be giving up, the entire thing falls apart and, surprise, surprise, James dissolves Parliament. Few, pretty soon after the Great Contract falls apart, Robert Cecil dies and James loses his most competent advisor. James isn't going to have anyone on the level of Cecil advising him ever again. The same year that Cecil dies, James's oldest surviving son, Henry, also dies. This means that James's new heir, his youngest son, Charles, hasn't really been prepped to be heir to the throne, which definitely isn't going to be a problem down the line. It's after Cecil's death that James really starts getting that reputation for being a bad ruler, for being lazy, and for relying on male favorites who aren't exactly keeping the interest of the people at heart. So, let's talk a little bit about some of James's male favorites. I think the first thing to discuss when we're talking about James's male favorites is that age-old question. Was James the first bisexual, straight, or gay? It is my opinion as a bisexual historian living in the year 2019 that James I was bisexual. Look, he did have a very long relationship with his wife. We do know the relationship was decently loving by the standards of the time. They had multiple children. It wasn't just, oh, we're squeezing out two, we're done. They had seven kids. Like, that suggests he was decently into her. He also was linked to various Scottish noblewomen throughout his life, so he did have an eye for the ladies. He also had an eye for the men. Throughout his life, he was linked to various young and attractive noblemen, starting with Esme Stewart. I don't think he and Esme like actually did anything, given that James was 13 and Esme was his cousin. But that was sort of the starting point of James's interest in young, handsome men. A lot of sources sort of say he was either completely straight or completely gay. And I'm like, bisexuality exists. Human sexuality is a spectrum. Why can't we recognize that history? So yeah, with that in mind, the fact that James I of England was probably gay, let's talk about his two most important favorites who have the biggest impact on James's time as King of England and who were the most scandalous and the most troublesome. First of all, we have Robert Carr, who's the second son of a Scottish noble family who's known for being pretty incompetent. 
He starts off being kind of a page boy at court, but keeps getting in trouble because he like bumps into stuff and spills things and just creates a whole mess. But then he almost dies in a jousting tournament. And in that, he catches James' attention and James is super into him and starts promoting him. By 1613, James has made Carr the Earl of Somerset and the first Scottish member of the House of Lords. So we have Carr, who's super incompetent, but also very dramatic and very scandalous. And the scandal is only going to continue. Because a young English noblewoman named Frances Howard, who is a daughter from the very influential Howard clan, falls head over heels in love with Carr, even though she is already married. That doesn't stop Frances. She gets a divorce from her husband by accusing him of being impotent, and before the ink on the papers even dries, she marries Robert Carr. One of Robert Carr's BFFs, this poet, Thomas Overbury, does not approve and pretty publicly speaks out against the marriage and says some pretty nasty things about Frances Howard. And oh my gosh, would you look at that? Right after Frances marries Carr, Overbury turns up dead of poison. Huh, isn't that weird? Frances and Carr end up being put on trial for Overbury's death. Both of them are found guilty. They should be executed for murder. But instead, they're sent to prison for the rest of their lives. But wait, James I steps in and both of them get released from prison way before the rest of their lives is up. This is the first time that James really is intervening with one of his favorites and showing some really bad judgment along the way. In 1614, while James is dealing with the whole Robert Carr, Francis Howard, Thomas Overbury drama, he has to call Parliament yet again to ask for yet more money. This time, Parliament goes super well. It's known as the Adult Parliament, JK. It goes absolutely terribly. But James gets something really good out of the Adult Parliament. It's during the Adult Parliament that he meets his most famous and most scandalous favorite. George Villiers. George Villiers is the handsome son of a minor country gentleman. He's so attractive that a high-ranking bishop in the Church of England calls him the handsomest bodied man in England. And when a bishop is saying that about you, you know that you're pretty damn hot. And as a result, the relationship between James and George picks up really quickly. By 1617, James has made George a lord. George eventually becomes the Earl of Buckingham and later on the Duke of Buckingham, which isn't too shabby for the son of a minor country gentleman. George also ends up getting control of the royal patronage system, which means that if anyone wants to have access to James I or move up in the royal court, they have to go through George. And George and James were almost certainly fucking. James does call George his, quote, sweet wife, as well as his sweet child. So, okay, daddy kink, like, you do you, James. George and James are having a great time of things, 
but the political situation in both England, Scotland, and Europe as a whole is going to get a little bit messy. In 1618, Scotland becomes dramatic for really the first time in James's reign. James tries to make Scotland more Anglican with what's known as the Five Articles, which tries to force the Church of Scotland to follow the Church of England with things like taking communion. The Five Articles are radically unpopular in Scotland, but James does manage to get them pushed through, which to me suggests that for all of his unpopularity and incompetence in England, he is still pretty on top of things and pretty popular in Scotland. The next year, in 1619, all of Europe goes to war, thanks to James's son-in-law, Frederick of the Palatinate, who his daughter Elizabeth had married. Frederick of the Palatinate accepted the throne of Bohemia, even though he wasn't really supposed to, so the Habsburgs invade Bohemia, triggering the Thirty Years' War. I will be making a Thirty Years' War study guide at some point, so I'm not going to go into a ton of detail right now on the topic. All we really need to know about it is, one, it is going to last 30 years, two, it's going to be the Spanish and Austrian Habsburgs against basically everyone else in Europe, and three, England is going to stay neutral in the conflict, which is going to make James super unpopular because everyone in England wants to jump in on the side of the Protestants. By 1621, James starts taking a physical downturn. He starts suffering from some really serious stomach issues. Most likely, James does suffer from porphyria, which historically has run through the English royal family. In addition to James, Alfred the Great and George III also had porphyria. Porphyria is what caused the quote-unquote madness of King George. In James's case, it doesn't cause any madness, but it does cause some really major stomach issues and some really serious kidney stones. While he's dealing with the health issues, he is forced to call Parliament once more. During this final call of Parliament, he finally gives in and agrees to some really limited reforms. He promises Parliament that its members will get free speech if they give him the money that he needs to continue on with his beautiful, beautiful court. And then James faces one last not-so-great moment, and this has to do with his only surviving son, Charles. By now, Charles is old enough and the only heir to the throne to need a wife. For reasons unknown to humanity, James and Charles decide that the dream wife would be the Spanish Infanta, Maria Anna, because everyone knows that the perfect wife for an English king is a fucking Spanish princess. Charles decides to go on a secret road trip to Spain with who else? The Duke of Buckingham to woo Maria Anna. Spoiler alert, the road trip goes really, really badly, and Charles and the Duke of Buckingham have to return home in utter humiliation. This is really the last thing that James has to live through, because in March 1625, after going on a nice little hunting jaunt, he falls sick and dies on March 27th, 
1625. At the time of his death, James leaves the throne of England to Charles, along with the various religious, financial, and parliamentary issues that he had started and never quite resolved. Thank you, James. So, as a quick recap about James, in case you are the type of person who prefers to skim their study guides for the key bullet points instead of reading them closely, here goes. James becomes King of Scotland at the age of 13 months after his mother is forced to abdicate the throne. He spends his childhood bouncing around between various regents before he manages to consolidate power and really get control of Scotland at the age of 17. He does a decent job at being King of Scotland. He puts down various noble rebellions and consolidates power as king for the first time in quite a while. He becomes King of England in 1603 after Elizabeth I dies. As King of England, he has to deal with financial issues, religious issues, and issues with a parliament that wants some power. He does a terrible job of dealing with all of these. Really, his only success is not getting blown up by Guy Fawkes and starting English colonization in the Americas. When James dies, he leaves his son with plenty of financial and religious issues, as well as quite the scandalous court. Good job, James. I hope you enjoyed this first study guide. Next week's study guide, surprise, surprise, is going to be on James's son, Charles I, aka I will attempt to explain the English Civil War in less than an hour. If you have questions, comments, or concerns, please email the podcast at sadgirlstudyguides at gmail.com. The podcast also has social media, although not Facebook, because I don't want to be attacked by Russian bots. You can reach out to the podcast on Twitter at sadgirlstudypod. We have an Instagram, sadgirlstudy, which has a lot of fun memes and images that have to do with the episodes. There's also a Patreon for the podcast, Sad Girl Study Guides. If you join, you get access to bi-monthly bonus episodes known as Tangent Casts. The best way to help the podcast grow is to subscribe on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher, as well as to rate and review so I can learn how to improve the podcast. Or else, I'll be sad. Thank you!